Well, good morning again, Grace. Those of you who are awake and perceptive have already realized I am not Pastor Benji. The first clue being, I have color in my clothes. (laughs) The man in black will be back with you next week, but today you get me. And I have to tell you too, similar to Pastor Benji last week when he shared with us that putting together his sermon and got to the point where it was just way too long. I had that experience earlier in this week, and I had to start cutting and hacking and slashing everywhere because I realized that instead of preaching two services, I was going to end up preaching all the way through both services and didn't want you all to be at lunch when I finished by myself in the room. So I had to cut a lot. And I'd like to ask you to be merciful toward me, knowing that um, this is a big subject and there are so many things to be said. Also, please look on the back of the outline in the bulletin and you'll see a great number of resources there. Please go to those resources and use them because they will fill in the gaps of a lot of the things that I'm just going to very quickly go over this morning. So my name is Chet. You're used to seeing me a few feet away behind a guitar, but I'm glad to be able to do this, and I appreciate that um, Benji has given me this opportunity. There's a specific reason that he gave me this opportunity today, because today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. On this day, which always correlates very closely to the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, that essentially legalized abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. On this day, we set it apart to do two things. One is, and we've sung about this, one is to celebrate all of God's great goodness and creativity in creating human beings, us. And the other, sadly, is to mourn and grieve over the children who have been lost through abortion some 60 million now, since 1973. I am very aware that there are many of you here who are likely impacted by abortion in one way or another. There also might be some people here, and Pastor Benji has referred to this, who have a strong emotional response to the things that I'm going to talk about because you've suffered miscarriage, which is a great loss, because you've struggled with infertility, These are real personal life and death issues, and they're liable to bring strong emotions up for many people. It's difficult because we're talking about personal life and death experiences. But I want to ask you, please stay through till the end, because at the end, we're going to see that mercy triumphs over judgment. Thanks again, brother, for the opportunity. Here's the, some of the reasons that uh, Benji asked me to speak this morning. I've had a long career or set of experiences in um, issues and circles related to abortion in one way or another. And I want to share very briefly about some of these things with you because there are more important things to talk about later. I don't roll out my experiences to you as some kind of credentials or like my bona fides or something like that. It's just my journey, but it's a journey that has made me very passionate about issues of life and the issue of death through abortion. 
So in the beginning, I was not the best candidate to become a strong pro-life advocate. When the Roe versus Wade decision came down in 1973, January 22nd, I was a senior in high school. I was in a civics class. I was learning all about government. And to be honest with you, I'm not really sure I understood all the details of how lives were made. Yes, those details. I'm not sure that I had put that whole picture together yet, even as a senior in high school. I was kind of naive. If you have issues with that, my parents are sitting right down there. Talk to them later and ask them why they didn't have the talk with me. And I'm telling you that to make myself look like an idiot, but besides that, to say that I was not the best candidate because since I didn't understand even a lot of the details of how babies were made, I certainly was not hearing anything about abortion. I do remember some stuff about Watergate brewing and things like that, but I, if they talked about it in our classes, and they must have, it went right over my head. I don't remember hearing about it in church. I don't remember hearing about it anywhere. It went completely by me. But several years later, as a college student, I took a class that was on pro-life issues and abortion. And that, that class opened my eyes and it lacerated my heart. As I understood what God was doing when he created humans and what we were doing in the destruction of those human beings, it, it was brutal. And it was beyond my understanding how, it, how I could not have been aware that one, at that time 1.6 million children a year were being killed through abortion just in our country. Over, for several years after that, I did um, all kinds of things in the pro-life arena. I served on various uh, crisis pregnancy center boards, things of that nature. I became a youth slash associate pastor, and I was sort of informally the pro-life pastor at our church. I was able to do some counseling with women and men on all sides of the issue. And I also did a few memorial services for women who had aborted their children and, and had come to repentance and asked if we could um, memorialize and remember that child who they never got to hold in their arms here. Then in 1988, a movement started that some of you will remember and some of you won't. The movement was called Operation Rescue. I'm going to use a term that I want to tell you first why I'm using it so that you'll understand it, and the term is abortion mill. I try never to say, sometimes I slip up, but I try never to say abortion clinic because language is important, it matters, and it's part of Satan's strategy. When we use the word clinic, we are usually implying that something of healing or health is taking place in that clinic. Abortion mills are not that. They are not places of healing. And so I prefer to use the term abortion mill and I know personally some women who have gone through those mills and felt like they were just another number, just another 400 bucks or whatever it was for them at the time. 
So there's a picture up on the screen. This is um, one of the pictures of a national rescue. What would happen at rescues is uh, a number of people would agree to gather together at a specific mill, and they would sit in front of the doors or stand in front of the doors, simply blocking access so that for that period of time, Maybe the workers couldn't get in if we got there early enough, and maybe the, hopefully the women could not get in to have an abortion. And while those doors remained closed and people could not get inside, there were sidewalk counselors and there were people praying and talking to the women and giving them one last chance to choose life for their child. We who were sitting in front of the doors, um, usually we were praying we were singing songs of worship. We were fellowshipping together. And one of the leaders of Operation Rescue coined this phrase. He said, it's like worship on the doorstep of hell. And that it was. And it was some of the best worship that I have ever experienced in my life because the, the forces of Satan and evil were so clear and the beauty and the, and the strength of God was so clear as well. Some of the people who were there would risk arrest, meaning that uh, when the police came, as they invariably did, and they, they started to say, you have to leave or you'll be arrested, some people would get up at that time and leave because their life situation uh, was not amenable to them being arrested. But it still helped to keep the place closed down for a while. Others would risk arrest and many of them were arrested. I was arrested several times, spent some time in jail myself. I did one overnight, I think, in jail. I went to court, and I was convict convicted of misdemeanor trespass with intent to disrupt a commercial business or something of that nature. If you go to the next slide, this is, I don't know how well you can see it, but this is actually, I think, originally a picture that was taken for the front page of the LA Times. And it just so happens that that group of people there is a group of people from our church. So I was kind of um, interested that that was floating around the internet still. I've, I feel looking back on it like in so many ways I lost my innocence in rescues. And the reason I say that is because, as I mentioned before, I saw the worst of people, the people that we called the, the pro-abortion people, we called them pro-aborts, were um, oftentimes quite violent, vicious, crude. They urinated on the rescuers who our, our disposition was always to be passive and peaceful in the things we did. They blew off those air horns in, in people's ears. They fabricated all kinds of incidents the pro-aborts did all kinds of incidents and then blamed them on um, the pro-life rescuers. I also saw in the media how we would go to a rescue and then we would go home if we weren't in jail and we'd watch on the news or we'd read, read in the newspapers and we would get a completely different version, an untrue version of what we had just experienced that day because the media wanted to put a different spin on it. When we went to court, there's something called a necessity defense, and that is simply that 
Sometimes it is necessary to break a technical law in order to save lives. For instance, if you were in your backyard and you heard in the yard, the, you heard in the yard next to you a toddler had fallen into a pool and you yell out and no one is coming, no one is there, every single one of us would scramble over that fence and we would dive into that pool to save that child. So the defense of necessity is what is it was necessary for me to trespass to save this life. Courts weren't having it. And it's not just that the juries weren't having it. The judge would know that this was coming because the judges were looking into this and the judges would say there's going to be no necessity defense here and there would be a penalty for any attorney who tried to bring that up. So much like that that went on. It was um, sort of the best of times and the worst of times. I've kind of described the worst, and I'll simply say about how it was the best of times that lives were saved. People came to salvation in Christ. Babies were saved from abortion. And some of those babies now are 30-year-olds walking around alive. As far as I'm concerned, it was worth every minute of it. This is going to seem strange, but we need to ask this question. Why should we as Christians even care about protecting human life? What's God's attitude about it? What does the Bible say? You can turn to Genesis chapter 9. This is um, like a reboot, Human and Creation 2.0, after what we read earlier, because it comes right after Noah and the ark, and it says this. Genesis 9, starting with verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This passage is making very clear that life in God's eyes is sacred and blood as it courses through our body becomes not only the literal life for us but because but it also is the symbol of life and it's so significant to God that God says if anyone either a person or an animal takes the life of an innocent human being it's as if there's a bounty placed on that person or that animal's head. God will not stand by and let people kill other people. He won't be idle about it. And so he's, he's placed this bounty on the head of every single person who would do this. Usually when we think of blood, you know, we, we picture it on the outside and we think of it as being gory and violent and we think that it often represents um, injury, wounds, disease, things of that nature, which is true. 
But blood on the inside, blood coursing through our veins, is essential life to us, and blood is a good and a beautiful thing. Blood equals life for us. But then we have to ask, why is it that human life is so significant? God created all kinds of life. Why is human life so significant in his eyes? And the answer is in that passage. For God made man in his own image. Here's what we mean when we talk about the image of God. God is a person. That means that he has unique, independent, intelligent characteristics, and he is a being with those specific characteristics by which he can be known. We usually refer to those as personality characteristics. So God is a person. Actually, three persons, yes, I know. No time to unpack all that this morning. Things like mercy and his love, his compassion, his creativity, his self-consciousness, those are the things that we look to and we say, yes, God is a person. Humans image God in these regards. He's a person. He has specific characteristics. We are created like him. And we are set apart and above all other living things in creation because we image God, nothing else does that he created. So when human life is taken, by implication, it's an assault on God himself. We are his image bearers, and when our lives are taken, it's an assault on God's image himself because we bear his image. And for that reason, he has a great deal invested in us. He loves to see himself reflected in us. It's interesting in this passage that just as God created us in his image, he tells us twice, actually, to go out and be procreators. So it's so cool the way God did this. He creates us in his image, and then he says, now you go out and be procreators, and as you all know, when we have children, those children come out, guess what? In our image. I just love how thorough God is in the way he does all of these things. And incidentally, I understand a lot better about these things now. Three, three children and nine grandchildren later, I think I have pretty much the whole picture at this point. I'm grateful for that. So, a lot of people would agree with what I've said so far, but then they would say, but... Here's the question. Do these things apply to the preborn? So let me read what is probably the most go-to passage for you. Psalm 139, verse 13. David speaking to God, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Amazing how David talks about something that's taking place in the secret place. So he can't see it, and he goes off all poetic about it. But the main point that he's making is he credits God 
for knitting together or forming that little human being in the womb. Life is in the blood. Our blood, our lives reflect the image of God, and it begins as God creates these children in the womb. One of the um, resources that you'll find on the back of your bulletin is a book that Pastor Benji recommended to us, and I think he's actually going through this with a class on Sunday evenings. It's called Love Thy Body, and the author has this quote. Her name is Nancy Piercy. When a cheap trinket is broken, we toss it aside without a second thought. But when a priceless work of art is destroyed, we are heartbroken. The reason sin is so tragic is that it destroys a human being, a priceless masterpiece that reflects the character of the supreme artist. This is what takes place in abortion. God has gone to great lengths to create his image in human beings, priceless masterpieces that reflect him. And that's why it's so heartbreaking to us. But I want to ask this question and go with this for a while. What is it that is so specific about abortion itself that when we look at the great scheme of things, we take so much time and effort to talk about it and dwell on it? Jesus gives us part of the answer to that in John chapter 8. At the beginning of the service, we read some wonderful verses from an earlier part in that chapter where Jesus says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Who the Son sets free will be free indeed. But then there was a conversation that continued on um, between Jesus and the Jews, and it kind of went south, and it got to a point where they weren't buying anymore what Jesus was saying. So in verse 43, Jesus says to them, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's my opinion that Satan has used abortion in our country and around the world to crack the door wide open for all kinds of other evil things that he wants to do. But it starts with abortion, and I'll see if I can unpack, you, unpack that for you a little bit. First thing this passage says is that Satan is a murderer. He is bloodthirsty. Although life has been cheapened, all around us, we still have usually a visceral reaction to the unjust, unjust death of fellow humans. But since Satan has been so successful in causing the death of some 60 million preborn children in what should be the safest place on earth, what is to stop him from rolling right through on his murderous rampage and taking lives in all kinds of ways in all other venues. As he has suppressed our response to what takes place in abortion, because it's hard to talk about, because there's guilt involved for some people, 
because it's not politically correct. As he suppresses all of these things, he rolls right through and gets more and more blood from more and more kind of violence in the taking of people's lives. But it also says that he's a liar, and he has to be a liar in order to perpetuate this whole rampage that he's on. If we really came to grips with what it is that Satan was doing, and and we faced it, and we called it out for what it was, we could make some inroads into stopping his, his role that he's on and his goals. So he is a liar. I have a, a grandmother. I had a grandmother. She was one of my favorite people on earth. She was, um, she loved us. She was very affectionate. She was easy to love. She was just a blast to be with. One of my favorite things about my grandmother is that she was a lot of fun to tease. She knew it and we knew it. So we would often come to her and say, Grandma, and we'd make up some story that we know would get her going, or we would tell a story and exaggerate some details that would get her going. And her response was always this, lies, all lies. Why do you have to talk like that? (laughs) To this day in our family, if we don't like what each other is saying, we look at each other and we say, lies, all lies. I love that about my grandmother. Jesus gives us the answer about Satan. Why do you have to talk that way? The reason is because it is his essential character. Jesus says in another version, it says about Jesus that when he talks in lies, he speaks his native language. We would kind of call it kind of his heart language. So if we look through recent history, we can see how he has unfolded these lies. In the beginning when the Supreme Court came down with the Roe v. Wade decision, they actually said, we can't really resolve the difficult question of when life begins or whether the fetus can be considered a person. So essentially, they kind of scratched their collective judicial heads and they said, that's above our pay grade. So instead of falling on the side of what they called potential life, instead they made abortion legal. And that's how Satan's lives got blew right through the front door in our country. Subsequent to that, um, people either who didn't understand or or who who were abortion-minded would say, oh, that, that thing in the womb, it's just a blob of tissue. It's just a clump of cells. I'll tell you, people in our culture are obsessed with what they can and cannot see. And again, it's significant in that psalm that David says that he talks about what happens in the secret place, and then he gives credit to God. In our culture, people don't see what's happening in the womb, in the hidden place, and so they say, oh, just some kind of clump of cells. Let's move along. Nothing to see here. But then came intrauterine photography, intrauterine video, ultrasounds, before we could catch our breath, they were doing blood transfusions with preborn children. They were doing surgeries with preborn children. Viability, the age at which um, a baby or a fetus could survive out, outside of the womb, became earlier and earlier and earlier because of technology. Then another blockbuster thing 
as we cracked the human genome and we discovered things that we didn't know before about DNA and about genetics, lo and behold, it was discovered that at the very moment of conception, a brand new, unique, independent, never existed before, never will exist again human life comes into being. One, specialized, one cell kind of specialized, another cell a lot bigger, specialized, carrying the DNA of each of the parents at the moment of conception becomes a brand new person who God made who has never existed before and never will exist again. And yet, people still argue about size and location. Just this weekend, I, I read a comment on an article in the internet, and the commenter said, nearly all abortions take place in the first trimester when the fetus is at the biggest, around three to four inches long. Comparing that to pulling a full-grown baby out of the womb and murdering it is just straight-up dramatics. Who is he to say? Let me show you a series of pictures that I snagged from the internet. These, uh, the first group of pictures are uh, pictures that are all one person that came in sequence. And um, just to try to kind of personalize this, even though they're anonymous and I pulled them off the internet, let's call this person Noel. There is Noel as she is a child created by God in the womb. Now watch these pictures as they roll through. As a baby, still a baby, sweet baby. I wish I knew that Noel person. <laughs> a little bit older, still a baby. Now a child, growing as a child, losing teeth, an older child, and now finally at the end of this sequence, there she is as a preteen. If I was able to find pictures of that person's life in the sequence and she became a young adult, perhaps she would look like this. And if she became an older adult, perhaps she would look like that fabulous woman. Or a senior adult, really senior, sorry mom, <laughs> she might look like that. We are obsessed with appearances, at which stage of life that we just saw would we declare this person, Noel, to be less than human or a non-person? Usually we're not quite that blatant in our assessments, but we do assign different levels of value and we use phrases like productive member of society or quality of life or even the word normal. Sometimes just because a person needs help with speaking or moving or a diaper change, we might think less of them. 
And most often, in my experience, our value judgments have to do more with our level of comfort than they do with the person that we're actually talking about. I just want to skip ahead, uh, just so you know there, to say that because this door has been cracked wide open, we find ourselves in a situation now where people who are God deniers and who are unwilling to believe what God has said about the life that the lives that he's created, people who are science deniers because they are unwilling to take the obvious proofs of biology, they are left and we are left in a culture where there's no standard. Whose authority do we make decisions on when it comes to the issue of personhood? Because that's where the shift has been made from human life to, well, we don't really know if it's a person or not. Since the definition of human life and personhood is being decided outside of what God has said, and in spite of the obvious biological proof, the door is now wide open for the same kinds of subjective judgments to be made about gender, race, sex, age, species, anything. You name it. Literally, you get to name it. And the goal of Satan's lives is to enforce in persons their sinful desires to think of themselves as being sovereign and to have it be, as Pastor Benji preached recently, all about their own kingdom. How do we respond to all of this? First of all, you'll see in your notes that I have social and political. The social side of it is social media, all of the ways in which we an- interact with people quite often anonymously. We are called to speak the truth in love, and we should do just that. Make sure, making sure that it's God's truth and making sure that it's in love because Um, many people who call themselves Christians or who are believers have done more damage for the sake of Christ and his reputation because they spoke the truth all right, but there was no love attached to it. In all of our social interactions, whether it be online or with people personally, we need to call out Satan by speaking the truth about these things, but doing it in love. Then politics. I... Imagine that a lot of you here, just hearing the word politics are kind of stiffening up a little bit and you're thinking to yourselves, we don't talk about politics in church. We're going to for a minute, but I'm also going to talk to you about the Bible. Um, most all of us are familiar with the passages, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, 1 Timothy 2, 2, that have phrases like this in it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Usually, when we talk about these scriptures, we say things like, well, we don't have kings and emperors and all of that anymore, so let's pray for our president, let's pray for our our governor and all, all of those people who are authority, which is right and good. 
We talk about how we shouldn't cheat on our taxes and um, obey the, all the traffic laws, right and good. But it's not the whole story, and I'm not even convinced necessarily that it's the most important part of the story. For we who are Americans, and this is why, we live in a constitutional republic here. Have you ever thought that when you are praying to God for those in authority, that if you back up the line of authority in the place where God has blessed us to live, the buck stops here, 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 here. Because we are government of the people, by the people, and for the people. The very least that is our obligation and responsibility to do is to vote. It's to vote. There are other things that we can and maybe should do for civic involvement, but that's the very least. Because when we're sitting and we're praying somewhere, God, move in this country. God, move with the, electric, the elected officials. God, change things. Make the results of this election favorable to the kingdom of Christ. We are praying for the people of the country who are voters and on whom the responsibility of government ultimately falls. Of the people, by the people, and for the people. So just so I don't get tarred and feathered, I'm not telling you who to vote for or how to vote. I look at the little letters after people's names. They matter, but I'm not nearly so interested in the D and the R as much as I am in the letter A for abortion-minded or the letter P for pro-life. God forgive us, I've heard for decades now, I didn't look it up recently, but I've heard for decades now that if the people of God would get out and vote, everything would be changed in the elections. But we sit home. This is the most important issue, the issue of life, because there's no liberty, there's no pursuit of happiness, there's no anything if we don't go out and vote for those who will stand for lives who are made in God's image. I want to go to the second point, which is the ministry that we do here and at CareNet. All I want to say about our ministry here is what I said before. To speak the truth in love to each other is invaluable. To remind each other that love plus safety plus time all of those things that God has graced us with here are at play in people's lives. And we also have a place in, in town called CareNut, which is a clinic because it does do things that are good for women and for men. We can give to CareNet, and we should. We can pray for them. We can volunteer, and we have very many people in our church who are volunteers at CareNet. The least, though, is to pray for them. And by the way, today at 2.30, there's going to be a prayer walk starting at City Hall, going to Planned Parenthood, and then back to CareNet, two-tenths of a mile each direction. And all of us are welcome to that. But finally this. If um, statistics are to be trusted, and I think they are, then today in this room there are many of you who have been 
personally affected by abortion. There are likely women in this room who themselves have had an abortion, and there are very likely people in this room who have advocated for it, who have paid for someone to have an abortion, who have pushed someone to have one. Many lives are touched by that in this room. When I was talking before about blood equaling life, I want to tell you that Jesus' blood equals new life to you. And that's so clear in scriptures like this, Ephesians 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. I've tried to put myself in your position, whoever you might be, and imagine what it would become, what it would be like to come to church on a day when you know it's going to be Sanctity, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and you're going to hear all of these, these things, maybe some of you for many years. Some of you, I'm sure, have already gone to Jesus. You know that your sins are forgiven you're clean, you're whole, you've moved on. We want so much, we at Grace, as your church family, want so much for those of you who have been involved in any way with abortion to know that Jesus' blood equals new life for you. And if, if you have let Satan keep you under his thumb in this, if, if you just shoved this down and said, I am a believer, I believe that Jesus died for all my sins, but I can't deal with this one because it's just too painful. Or if I deal with it, people might find out what my secret is. Maybe my husband doesn't even know. Maybe my parents don't know. Jesus has all of that. He has it. And he he, right now, if he's speaking to you through the Holy Spirit, he, he, what he would be saying to you is, let's get on with this. Let's bring this out between you and me, the Holy Spirit, and yourself, and, and begin the process of forgiveness and healing that he wants so much to bring to you. If he's speaking to you, speak back to him on this and say, okay. Let's go. Let's have this done in my life once and for all. If you are a woman who had an abortion or any of the people that I, I described before, there's also the issue for you, perhaps, of you know that you are forgiven for your abortion. You know that God has forgiven you. And you're good with that. But there are people that you're not forgiving, or perhaps you're a grandparent and you know that your grandchild was aborted, or you're a man whose child was aborted, or you're a man who pushed someone into having an abortion. Another one of Satan's lies in his tricks is to push on you to stay in that place of unforgiveness yourself. 
who the sun sets free is free indeed. And if he frees you and forgives you from your abortion, he certainly wants you to let go of that burden towards those that you have withheld forgiveness from. And it's very important in what he wants to do to blow this thing wide open in your life, in our church, and in our country. I know I'm late. I want to say this, this one last thing, and then we're going to pray. It's also a trick of Satan's, and I've experienced it myself, that having come to a point of, of knowing that I, I need to repent, I think, well, I kind of got this. I know what I need to do, and then I don't do it because I wake up the next morning, and I, I see things differently, and I just kind of move on. If God is convicting you today that you need to come to terms with him and find his peace and forgiveness, please talk to someone today. If you're a woman, take your phone into the stall in the bathroom. Text someone and say, I need to talk to you. Find a godly person that you can talk to about this and just say, I need someone to walk through this with me. Or, or go to Karenet and ask Karenet because they do post, post-abortion counseling and they will offer you forgiveness and love as well. But go to someone and let them, let us, impart the peace and forgiveness of Christ to you. We're going to pray. And because I have to go put my guitar on, I'd like to just ask if you would pray quietly um, to the Lord by yourself. Don't think of this as dead time, but really pray for people in the congregation who are affected by what they've heard this morning, that God would bring them to repentance and forgiveness. And then we'll sing.